This morning in your Bible, we would encourage you to turn to our text that will be taken from Ephesians 2. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 10. In your Pew Bible, you can find this selection on page 1,343. Uh, on this Lord's Day, we also note uh, the history of the Protestant Reformation. We hope to devote more specific attention to those themes this evening in our worship service, but notice that by God's providence, we come to a passage this morning, and this is true of all of Scripture, but a passage this morning that especially emphasizes the sovereignty of God in redemption. And that was the great theme that was rediscovered and re-emphasized in the Protestant Reformation, and that is the great theme that we also as a congregation perhaps need to rediscover and re-emphasize, the sovereignty of God in redemption, that God is God, because that will have a profound effect upon us. Once we come to an increasing knowledge of who God is, that then shows us who we are. And when we know who God is, and when we know who we are, the only logical result is to praise Him for what He has done. Now, if you scan verse 1, you'll notice that in your New King James, there are words that in our italics, those words are provided by our translator. And so I want to read them, the text rather, by omitting those words, because the words that are placed there, he made alive, are drawn up by our translators from verse 4. Uh, this is, boys and girls, an inspired run-on sentence. Uh, the main verb of this passage is not found until verse 4, but verses 1 through 3 describe our spiritual state and condition, painting the darkest of backdrops so that the brilliancy of the light of God's redemptive work can shine forth in verse 4. So hear now the word of God. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we indicated in the introduction prior to the reading of Scripture, those words stated there in verse 4 are the most remarkable words. And I would encourage each and every one of us to just simply reflect upon these words and contemplate these words and meditate upon these words, especially in this Lord's Day. But God. 
but God. It points out, yes, indeed, the existence of God, the transformative power of God, the redeeming work of God. But it points out His existence, His sovereignty, His attributes of grace and of mercy, of kindness and of love, as those attributes have moved Him to action. An action that radically transforms us, changing our state, changing our condition, moving us from being children by nature of wrath to being children who are adopted, heirs of an eternal kingdom. And it is my pastoral hope that when we come into these gatherings together for corporate worship, we do so reflecting upon this simple statement, but God. If it were not for that but God, where would we be? Where would you be if it were not for but God? You would still be a child of wrath. You would still follow after the lust of your flesh. You would still be nothing but a disobedient, fallen sinner. But God. You're here. I trust this with sincerity, but you, you pick up these songs of praise. You receive the salutation and the benediction from your triune Lord. You hear words of grace and of peace, of paternal kindness, because of that simple yet most profound statement, but God. This morning with the time allotted us, we want to look at this section of Scripture underneath this theme, a description of God's saving work. Noticing, first of all, that the text describes man's condition, humanity generally speaking, but also you and me as individual persons. Secondly, you will notice also that the text describes God's intervention. And then thirdly, the text describes grace's demonstration. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, a description of God's saving work, describing man's condition, God's intervention, and grace's demonstration. Verses 1 through 3, first of all, then, describe man's condition. Humanity, and again, we said humanity, generally speaking, what is said in verses 1, 2, and 3 is true of every single member of the human race by nature. And when Paul uses that phrase, and when we also use that phrase, by nature, we're referring to what humanity is apart from God's saving work, apart from redeeming grace, apart from His grace and His mercy and His loving kindness. So verses 1, 2, and 3 do not necessarily refer to a certain chronological time, but a spiritual condition and a spiritual state. And that's why it's applicable to each and every one of us by nature 
apart from God's saving work. Verses 1, 2, and 3 describes you, and it describes me. And as it does so, it ought to drive us to continued exercises in humility, from which can come forth evidences of repentance and faith. Notice, first of all, then the text describes a condition of spiritual death and then spiritual corruption. And it's fitting in God's providence that we find ourselves dealing with this passage in the Sunday most closest to Reformation Day. Because what the spiritual death is described of could also be referred to as total depravity, which then results in a total inability. And total depravity is the biblical teaching that, again, by nature, apart from God's grace, the entirety of our being, the very fabric of our soul, is fallen into depravity, is sinful. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that humanity, apart from God's intervention, is as evil in their expressions as it could perhaps be. There is, thanks be to God, restraint laid upon even falling humanity. But what total depravity refers to is the sense that the entirety of the person is impacted negatively by the power of sin. And again, if you look at the grammar and just read it straightforward, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, death, spiritual death as a consequence of the rebellious fall, not just spiritual sickness, not just spiritual weakness, but spiritual death. The word used is a word which simply refers to a person who has no life. And you, who were dead in trespasses in sins. But how did we die? And boys and girls, the Bible, Bible tells us how this all came about in a most clear fashion. Adam and Eve, and their fall into sin by the eating of the forbidden fruit. And when Adam committed that sin, he did so representing the entire human race. Now, I know that there are many in our culture and many even in the broader churches and many in places of education, both at the lower levels and the higher levels, who will laugh at our explanation this morning of Adam and Eve and of a serpent and of a fruit and a forbidden tree. But the Scriptures are plain. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 explains further and perhaps more clearly the impact of that rebellious act of Adam. In Romans 5, verse 12 and 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. An old English primer taught young children to read by saying, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's the biblical truth. So where did we receive our sinful nature? When did we become dead in sins and in trespasses? When our first father, Adam, representing the entire human race, rebelled against God 
And this depravity flows from one generation to another generation, encompassing the entirety of the human race. And I would say like a hereditary disease, but it's not a disease, it's death. That's humanity's spiritual condition, death. To quote one commentator, our condition is that we are spiritually dead, severed and alienated from God, the source of true life. But the Apostle Paul goes on, not only describing our condition of spiritual death, but also our condition of spiritual corruption uh, in verses 2 and 3. Because we are dead by nature again in trespasses and sins, there was then the result uh, of a spiritual corruption in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. And it goes on and on and on. We could just summarize these inspired statements of the Apostle Paul to describe uh, that this is walking and living in a habitual life of sin, out of step, out of conformity, by way of rebellion against the law of God. And the verdict is that all such who walk in this manner are children of wrath. Underneath the sovereign judgment of God. And now here again we find ourselves uh, at, at a conflict because we well know that when these words fall upon the ears of many, the ears of many will recoil because dead sinners don't appreciate being told that they are dead sinners. They would much, much, much rather be told that they are not as bad as some others. They would much, much, much rather be told that if they would only try a little bit harder this week, that then they can separate themselves from the rest of the deplorables of human society. Dead sinners do not appreciate being told that they are dead sinners, and yet we find ourselves at a conflict because if we're going to do justice to Scripture, which we must, then we have to proclaim no matter what the results may be that you, by nature, dead sinner. But thankfully, we have the opportunity to say more than just that. We can go on and we can say, but God. So you, dead sinner, but God. And that brings us into our second point, the description of God's intervention. Notice, first of all, the motives for his intervention. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The motivation, the motivation for God's intervention in our lives lies completely within himself. This is the truth that the Reformers rediscovered and reemphasized the sovereignty of God. Don't think for a moment that God looked at you or looked at me and said, ah, I see something in them that's redeemable. I see something in them that makes me want them as my children, as my heirs. I see some good quality. I see that they're better than the rest. Because there was nothing for God to see in us. 
to move him, to motivate him, to intervene with his saving love. What motivated God? His love. And what is love? It's a selfless, sacrificial action. Now God, first and foremost, loves Himself with an infinite love because He is the highest object of good, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that inter-Trinitarian, eternal relationship. Love one another. God is love, but His love, we might say, overflows, spills over outside of Himself and finds as objects dead sinners. And this congregation is the most amazing thing of salvation. That God overflows with love and that His love then channels itself through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon human persons who by nature are dead in sins and in trespasses. And this also highlights what a wonder love is. You see, it's somewhat easy. I say somewhat easy because even then, love can be a most difficult thing to exercise. But we would all admit, and boys and girls, you would admit, I mean, it's easy to love someone who's lovable. I mean, you think, and this is just a faint illustration, so it falls short in many ways. But, but imagine, boys and girls, a nice, cute little puppy. A little puppy. Just cute cuddly. And the, the minute you see the, the little puppy, you say, oh, I love that puppy. And maybe you say to mom and dad, you know, mom, dad, we really need a puppy. That little puppy, because of its very nature, is just lovable. But now, by contrast, imagine you see a runaway dog that's disease-ridden, malnourished, its furs falling out. You look in its eyes if you're able to and you can just see that it's sick even unto death. Do you love that dog? Well, you say, no, that, that, that dog's not lovable. Now, I said the analogy falls short because we're even beyond that. By nature, imagine that that dog is dead on the side of the road in the hot month of August. And everything that's associated with roadkill, the smell, the sights. Do you love that dog? No, you recoil away from it. And you, who were dead in sins and in trespasses, God loved And if that doesn't overwhelm your heart, then I don't know what will. If that doesn't move you to humbly but also joyfully praise God, then I don't know what will. And you, dead in sins and trespasses, God loved. And out of His love, there's also His mercy. We've said this Many times in the past couple of months, mercy is this kind-hearted, this soft-heartedness of God that moves him to action. 
When you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, at first all of the outwardly religious persons walked by in their spiritual snobbery, and they passed by the Samaritan. He was a Samaritan, and he was on the verge of death. But the Samaritan was moved by mercy to take pity, to act. And so imagine for a moment that there you are, there I am, on the road of history. Because of our rebellious sin, we're lying in the ditch dead. And God in His sovereignty walks and He sees and He loves. And so He intervenes. He intervenes with the action of making alive. This phrase, making alive, I hope we understand the doctrine of regeneration. To make alive again. Why do I say I hope we understand this doctrine? Because it's absolutely vital. You can think of what Jesus says as he talks with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he was a religious teacher. Nicodemus had all of the credentials of his day. And yet he was completely ignorant to the basics of the kingdom of God. And sadly, that describes many a person today. Oh, they can quote text. They can debate theology. They can argue about this or that when it comes to spiritual matters. But ignorant about the first things of the kingdom. And so what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, unless a man is made alive, unless a man is regenerated, he cannot even enter the kingdom of God. He cannot even see the kingdom of God. He cannot even perceive spiritual realities. Because dead people don't see. They don't understand. And regeneration is not something that man can produce. I, in my office of minister of word, cannot regenerate a dead person. The elders of the congregation cannot regenerate a dead person. Only God can give life ultimately. And in regeneration, that's exactly what God does, especially the person of the Holy Spirit takes the spiritual life that Christ has obtained through His death and resurrection and then applies that spiritual life into the dead soul of the individual so that a new principle of life is implanted into that spiritual heart that then begins to beat with the initial exercises of repentance and faith and then perhaps grows stronger underneath the ordinary means of grace until a robust spiritual heartbeat pounds out in repentance and faith. And here again, perhaps an analogy and we hope it's not something that you can relate to both now nor in the future. Uh, but imagine for a moment that a person has a severe heart attack. And the heart under its duress stops beating. So medically we would say they are flatlined. 
But now imagine in this illustration that by God's providence, a medical personnel is there who has the knowledge, thanks be to God, to use the appropriate equipment, what we often refer to, and, and hooks up the, the, the little buttons, the little tabs in the right spot, and, and then pushes the button to send an electrical current into that non-beating heart, and suddenly the heart begins to beat again, and life begins to flow again. In some small, faint measure, that's what regeneration is. We were created originally spiritually alive, but by our sin and by our rebellion, our soul died. But God... And now here again, if, and we hope this never happens, but if you, if I, suddenly have a massive heart attack and and someone here in the congregation has the the wisdom and the knowledge to use the AED, which I can see right over, at least the sign over there, and if they are able to use it properly, and if we recover, what would your attitude be towards that person? Wouldn't you be profoundly thankful? Wouldn't you sing their praises? Wouldn't you tell everybody? I was dead. Respectfully speaking, in relationship to my heart attack. But now I'm alive. And let me tell you what this person did. And in our own lives and in the life of this congregation, we live here in this community. We interact with our fellow neighbors and our co-workers. There should be, and I understand in the appropriate time and in the appropriate manner, there should be this eager zeal. Let me tell you, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And how did this take place? But God. God who is rich in His mercy and in His love and His grace intervened and gave me new spiritual life so that I now exercise repentance and faith. And that points us into what we see in our third point, that God's saving work describes grace's demonstration. Notice verse 7 that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And really, the Apostle Paul, and we say, of course, this is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the attributes of God, which are in one, all one in God, but they just tumble out of the Apostle Paul. He speaks of love, then he speaks of mercy, then he speaks of grace, then he speaks of kindness. Because God's saving work reveals and testifies to the attributes of God. Think about what a wonder it is of God's electing love that the Apostle Paul can write, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want to humbly but also pointedly ask you this morning, are you amazed 
that God is kind to you? Or do you think, and you've probably been trained well enough that you would never say this out loud, but do you think that you deserve God's kindness? Are you amazed that God is kind to you? By nature, a dead sinner. And that in his kindness, he pours out his grace and his mercy toward us in Christ Jesus, saving us by his grace. You know, when the Protestant Reformation took hold, it wasn't so much that the Reformers came to understand new things. It's more that they began to appreciate old things. I say old things in the sense of the doctrine, the theology of Scripture. And if we see a need for Reformation in our own lives and in our own congregation and in our own federation and in our churches, that Reformation is not going to come by the discovery of new things, but the rediscovery of old things. The old basic truths of our spiritual depravity But then also the wonderful statement, but God. And when we make that statement and when we think about that term, but God, reformation will come when we think immediately of his kindness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his love. And that I can assure you will revive the soul of a person and of a church. And so really our prayer on this Sunday close to Reformation Day is that the Lord would revive and would establish and would renew His work in and among us by reminding us who we are by nature and who He is so that we might go forth in all aspects of our lives saying, by nature, a dead sinner, but God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand simply amazed at who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we confess that we become too familiar at least in a superficial way, with these terms, these words, such as love, grace, mercy, kindness. We ask through the preaching of the Word this morning that we might be paused, that we might be led to reflect, that we might be led to appreciate the wealth of theology that is packaged into that simple little phrase, but God. And may your name then be praised and honored and glorified by us both now and forevermore for the sake of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.
Amen.